0: You're listening to Tarazi Tuesdays with the Bible as Literature.
1: This is Father Mark
0: Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton.
1: And you are listening to Tarazi Tuesdays with the Bible as literature podcast. So, Father Paul, welcome back to the program. How are you this morning?
2: Very well, thank you.
1: So we wanted to talk today about a subject that is near and dear to our hearts because it was first near and dear to your heart, Father Paul. And that is the historical context against which the Bible was written. And of course, I'm talking about Hellenism, the Hellenistic period in the mid third century BC. We know that this context factors heavily into your assessment of the formation of Scripture, and we were hoping that you could talk about this a little bit today on the program. What you're saying about this period and the formation of the Bible in your scholarship?
2: Well, first of all, you know, in literature, it's always difficult to convince people as to the origin of a certain text and the main point, because the argument is always circular. My approach to break this apparent vicious circle is to obviously come up with an hypothesis, as everybody does. But then the test of the hypothesis is against the text itself. And according to me, as I said so many times, the hypothesis that finds least hurdles in the text is most probably the correct one that's all one can say so Given the entire biblical text, I came up with the hypothesis, which I detailed in my audio and very much so in the book, that the entire Old Testament was produced by a school in mid-third century and not in the Persian period, as the majority of the scholars assume. And the reason is the following. No one can argue against this fact in the Bible that throughout the Entire scripture, the stand is anti city, anti temple, anti kingship throughout in any book you open. Already very early in Genesis 1 through 11, then with Abraham and Pharaoh, then with Pharaoh and Israel, with Moses and Pharaoh, and so on and so forth, and then the rest with David, Solomon. It's so obvious. And this importance given to the cities was already present in Mesopotamia. But then with the advent of Alexander of Macedon, it became much more important. Number one, the Greeks were basically building and statue and city people, mainly the cities, Sparta, Athens, and so on and so forth. And the culmination of all that is that this foreigner Arian, who came to a Semite area, established his capital in Babylon, which is the main city of the Semites in the east. So it was a double jeopardy for all these people. And they conceived a literature that criticized Alexander, but by the same token, as I stress time and again, it criticized their own civilization, which is amazing. And this is so obvious in the fact that Israel and Judah are much more harassed than the nations in the Bible. (laughs) It's very clear all over the place. So that was the price they had to pay in order to get themselves or offer a way out of this impasse now i'm opting for mid third century for the following reasons number one one has to give some time to let what Alexander of Macedon did in the East, sink in the mind and heart and soul of the people. So I'm giving it roughly 100 years after his death. And that would coincide with the era of his heirs, the the Diadochi, those who took his place, and the two main contingents were uh, the so-called Seleucids that were Greek Macedonians the followers of Alexander that ruled the greater Syria the fertile crescent and the Ptolemies that ruled egypt and i am proposing that the bible was written under those Seleucids for this extra reason that after one hundred years the people in the area of Mesopotamia, the authors of the Bible, realized that Alexander, through the Seleucids, is here to stay. There was no possibility in their mind that these people would disappear that's the background i'm talking about that would explain without so many hurdles the content of the bible the way it was written the stories of the bible you will see in my book that i propose that goliath the philistine is alexander or one of the Seleucids, for a very simple reason that the Philistines, people always assume that there were Philistines and so on. But in the Bible, it is from a verb that means to spread. They spread and they were near the sea and they came from Kaftor and everybody assumed that it is either Cyprus or central Turkey. So here again, we see that the author obliquely Pointed to this warrior, and then the shepherd David took care of him. But unfortunately, David decided to become a king, which means like the Philistines that had five cities and kings and so on, and everything collapsed. So, this is my thesis proposal, and I believe that it's very solid that the Bible could not, the way it is, as a totality could not have been produced before the mid-third century BC and could not have been produced later because it would not reflect this background that is sensed throughout the Bible. So obviously it's a thesis. Basically that would be my description of that period, that we have Aryans. Remember that way back in Mesopotamia the Sumerians were Aryans. But they were from the same area. That's what I stressed also in my thesis, that society is more geographical than it is ethnical as people like to talk today after the experience in Europe and the nations and so on. It's not so. You live with your neighbor willy-nilly. So being Aryan or Semite in that time between the Sumerian and the Babylonians, the Akkadians, there was no problem. But to have an outsider from the area, and also ethnic outsider, coming in and imposing himself, it's a jolt. And the people proposed a response. Again, in my book, I stress the fact that we have Ham and Shem covering the same area. But Japheth and his sons come from the Isles, which is technical terminology to describe Greece, the coastlands or Isles, the Eim and the text says that ultimately japheth will enter into the blessing of shem so one can hear these connotations that i believe are very important for the theory
0: how does this then relate to this proliferation of greek language literature that ended up in the bible like Maccabees and Wisdom of Solomon and the Wisdom of Sira, How does that fit in with this historical context? My thesis also says
2: that on purpose, the authors wrote their text in a Semitic language, which I show in the book. It was concocted by them from so many different Semitic languages with the purpose of translating it themselves into Greek. That is, ultimately, they wanted to address it to those Greeks, to belittle them, by also belittling themselves, that classic in the Bible. Part of my thesis is that the original authors translated the Hebrew text into Greek to force the hand of the Greek reader to always submit to the original text, which is in Hebrew. This explains why the Septuagint is very special. It's the closest possible translation to the original with the caveat that it can never be the original. And that, by the way, is reflected in the preamble of one of these books you have referred to that is not in the original Hebrew, which is the wisdom of Sirach, where the grandson of the supposed author says One has to be very careful because the translation never renders the original meaning. It's a very impressive passage. Now, my conviction, but it's much more complex, but I'll try to say it in a few words. My conviction is that these extra books that were produced, like Wisdom of Solomon and Wisdom of Sirach and the Maccabees, and so on, was precisely to say to the people, either one has to follow the same message of the original Hebrew, take the Proverbs, for instance, or Job, where wisdom is the biblical teaching and not the Greek wisdom, the Sophia. This is developed in the wisdom of Solomon and the wisdom of Sirach. And their importance from that perspective lies in the fact that unexpectedly, these so-called books of wisdom have a detailed rendition of the biblical epic, biblical story. One would ask why? Well, The reason, according to me, is that they wanted to draw the attention that one has to remember this biblical story that is part of the deal. The other books, just to give an example of the Maccabees, is precisely a critique of the circumcision as being the ultimate sign of being a Jew and to remind the people that they have to do the law. So the Maccabees, if you like, it's already the background against which the letter to the Galatians was written. So again, in a nutshell, it's a very complex issue, but that would be my answer to it. And one has always to remember that these additional books are important because they shed light but they are not as essential as the original ones written in the scriptural Hebrew and translated into Greek.
0: So along these lines, how should we understand the longer version of Daniel or the alternate versions of Esther that we only have in Greek? How do you understand those in this historical context? I would look at them from the same
2: perspective of the production of the other books additions to precisely open this bridge to the situation that continued after the mid-3rd century throughout the 2nd and especially the 1st century with the Maccabees and the Hasmoneans and so on. But in this case, one will have to enter into details about the background of those times. I mean, let me just say a few words about Daniel. Daniel, you know, is very strange. He's all over the place. He's in the time of the Babylonians and the Persians and so on. It's a figure that seems to straddle many centuries. And the ultimate intention is to say that he is the man of wisdom like Joseph who brought the true teaching of the Torah to the nations. And the additions go along these lines. We have Bell and then Susanna. That's how I hear them. In the case of Esther, because it was a book that referred to the Jews, quote unquote, that lived totally outside in Persia, then again, we have additions that stress the piety of those quote-unquote Jews, as in the case of Daniel and the three youths with him. And so that's the way I would perceive what was going on.
1: I don't want to let your point about the languages, the point that you make in your book, get passed over too lightly on today's episode, because it's stunning that these ancient writers would architect a language to essentially disassemble the mentality of their opponents in the region. Could you talk a little bit more about how language is linked to our understanding of meaning and so forth and how it shapes the reality? You've talked often about how people don't read the Bible anymore because they're reading it in translation.
2: Yeah, definitely. It's important, and I say even more in my book, that the original has to be tested against the text itself. I mean, I've showed people, I remember a student of mine who came who had been in Israel and learned Hebrew, and I said to him, watch out, don't read back modern Hebrew into biblical Hebrew. And after half a semester, he realized that what I was saying was correct. That's why one has to study a word in the Bible and see the interconnection scholars only project outside the Bible that the Hebrew in the time of Isaiah and well uh, this is a fallacy for a very simple reason that all the scholars agree that the Hebrew of scripture is the same throughout you don't have any development (laughs) it's the same Hebrew and I'm suggesting that the authors who were definitely erudite coming from that area that for millennia was civilized, if you would like they knew all these semitic languages that were around them notice how aramaic that came from the syrian desert was used in babylonia and so on i mean it's the same language someone coming from the middle east would understand that a syrian can understand a lebanese and egyptian and a saudi arabian and so on and so forth although These are not totally the same language, but we're used to them, so we understand one another. So I'm saying that the authors just came up. The basis would have been the Aramaic, but I'm still stressing that the language of the Bible is specific, and I call it concocted, made up it's a little bit like esperanto in modern times still millions of people speak it it was made up on the basis of romance languages and it is a possibility and it does exist one can do that The fact that they were aware of Aramaic is reflected in the book of Daniel. I have my theory how suddenly in chapter 2, verse 4, you have a switch to Aramaic that goes until the end of chapter 7. Why would the author do that? It is to remind the hearers that, yes, they knew Aramaic, but they decided to write it in that other specific language of theirs. So even their colleagues in Mesopotamia had to make the effort, exactly as the Greeks had to make the effort, to go to that original biblical Hebrew. In my book, I show that we have a reference to other Semitic languages, but never to Hebrew. Hebrew is just the language of scripture. That's what I would like to stress. And one cannot refer to a Jewish rabbi talking Hebrew in the 20th century and try to understand the Bible. It's like taking the word of a modern Greek person living in Greece today and telling you what the New Testament is saying. It's a big joke. (laughs) (laughs) you have to show how the words are used in scripture and i gave in passing this example about the pelishtim from the verb palash falash anyone who knows arabic understands that word we still use it in arabic
0: it means to spread go open i had a professor of hebrew bible who did his graduate work in israel he's an american and when he would teach scripture to israelis he would make the israeli students translate the hebrew bible into modern hebrew and he told us that sometimes they would cheat. And they'd use the same word from ancient Hebrew into modern Hebrew. And he would say, uh, 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 they don't mean the same thing. So I had a professor who noticed that exact same thing, the difference between modern Hebrew and biblical Hebrew, and the tendency of cheating to try to assume that they mean the same thing. It doesn't work. Precisely, precisely. And this
2: applies to the development of Hebrew throughout the centuries. It applies to Greek, it applies to all languages. I stress the fact that that the text is basically addressed to the original hearer. Once you get to the following generation, something is already lost. That's why one has to make the effort to rehear the text within its own context. And here, you know, I refer to a tremendous work done by a German Jew, it's called the concordance to the Hebrew Old Testament, Lisovsky he writes the verses, part of them, but already inviting you to check on all these verses to figure out whether his proposal to understand a verb or a noun in a certain way, uh, it's okay with you because you can disagree with him. (laughs) And I use it all the time. It's not a dictionary. The dictionary is very dangerous because it tells you what the author assumes the meaning of a word, even when they try to impress you by using Arabic and Aramaic and so on. As you said, it's cheating. The only way is to have many people doing the same effort in the same direction and without preconceived theological assumption. I remember how the people would say, well, if it is so, then how could you? Well, it doesn't matter. (laughs) I don't want to explain to you your theology. That's your theology. I'm stressing the importance to try to understand what the original hearer heard. It's painstaking, but that's the price of it. I give importance to that expression. As it is written, not as it is perceived. As it is written. So the text is always written. There is no non-written text. Even the taping that you're doing now is written. Take the Orthodox who use the old graphene and they apply it to the icon. You write an icon. (laughs) You express it in a way that becomes etched and you can't play with it anymore. That's what the writing is all about and the writing is a language whether there was a hebrew before the bible or there was no hebrew it's immaterial the biblical text is in that language of the biblical text that one has to make the effort to learn
1: the same way that biblical hebrew dismantled hellenistic greek it dismantles our modern identity constructs which are just another theology yeah because once you impose jewish culture or greek culture or greek identity you're just finding another way to work against the bible's agenda which is to facilitate brotherhood not different identity groups i just think it's very important for our listeners to understand that we have to submit to the text we can't try to reinvent the text in our image
2: To push along this line, which again I express in the book towards the end when I deal with the New Testament, I believe the same thing was done by the school of the New Testament. It throated in the Roman Empire, whose language was Latin, and on purpose, actually they knew of Latin, as we hear in the Gospel of John about the cross of Christ and so on, Hebrew, Greek, and Latin, but on purpose, they forced the Latin Romans, to hear it in the language of the people they have conquered, which are the Hellenes, the Greek. But we don't need to go into that debate here. But I am saying that my thesis applies also to the New Testament. You force the other to submit to a strange text.
1: This is, I think, an important building block in your overall thesis and something that we should definitely probe in future discussions. But anyways, thanks so much for your time today. Thank Thank you very very much, Father. Thank thank you very much. Have Have a great day.
0: The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.